I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're on the trail of a new theory of consciousness with writer Tim Parks and his new book, Out of My Head. Tim Parks is an acclaimed author of novels, non-fiction and essays, including Europa, In Extremis, A Season with Verona, Teachers to Sit Still and Italian Ways. And he's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and has won the Somerset Maugham Award, the Betty Trask Prize, the John Llewellyn Rees Prize, the John Florio Prize, and the Italo Calvino Prize. And Tim's latest book, Out of My Head, On the Trail of Consciousness, we're going to talk about today. Tim, welcome to Little Atoms. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So what was the inspiration for this book? The inspiration for this book really started one day at a conference that I very much did not want to go to, that I'd been press-ganged to go to by a professor at my university who, to whom I owe a certain debt. Uh, and it was about neuroscience and art, you know, and the neuroscientists didn't want to be there because they don't really care about art, and, and the artists thought they wouldn't understand a thing, which was more or less the case. But there came a moment in this where... We have one of those classic situations where the neuroscientist is telling you what happens in your brain while you look at a piece of art, you know, and he's saying this is, you know, an aesthetic response. You can see these neurons doing that. And this is where the work of art is represented. This is where the image appears in the brain, as it were. And there was a young man, there was a colleague, I'd seen him around, never met him before, and he just stood up and he said, you know, but Professor Zeki, this famous Professor Semir Zeki, uh, London University, actually, um, he said, Professor Zeki, there are no images in your head. There are no images in your head. There are neurons, but your experience of the work of art is where the work of art is. Okay, and this came as like, you know, I'm just thinking, wow, that was, that, was, that was a very heavy attack because we're so used to reading, you know, they've now found the part of the brain where this happens. They've now found the part of the brain where you store memories of sex or they've now found the part of the brain where the words are. You know, and then you think, well, yeah, the words are in the head and, you know, where else could they be? And then, of course, they never find them than that. You know, I mean, they open the brain and, and they come across neurons. And so you say, well, they must be there like the electronics in a computer. 
And then you say, yeah, but wait a minute, the computer has a screen, and then somebody looks at the screen, and, and, and that's not happening either. So I started sort of experimenting, are there images in my head? And more and more you realize, well, you do have sort of vague visual, uh, visual experiences maybe with your eyes closed, but it's certainly nothing like when you open your eyes and there it is, you know, the world. So I just got into a long series of conversations with this guy who turned out to be a most wonderful man too. He's now, now a very good friend. And he's had this whole theory which has been, he's been putting out. And you think, it's not possible that I've met a really important... You know, it's, it's not possible that I've met the new Galileo. It's not possible. So that there's a whole interesting thing there about authority. Like, I've met this guy who's saying that a lot of stuff that they say, uh, you know, that they teach in textbooks is wrong. But can he really be right? And so that's interesting too, you know, and, and he's an interesting guy. We fell into these very long conversations. And um, after a while, I began to think, well, you know, would it be interesting to take all this on board? He got me to read a ton of books. And then, then I got this invitation, which just seemed to say, yes, you've got to do this book. I got an invitation to Heidelberg. Now, this is a classic freebie thing that occasionally happens to writers. Can you come to Heidelberg with various other writers and talk about science and religion with any professor of your choice? Okay. So science and religion, you know. Um, so I said I'd like to talk about consciousness with some neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists, and, and so on. And they said, yeah, that'll do. Just put in some stuff about... So there you are, and they're offering you euro money, basically. You know, <laughs> euro money obviously has special connotations in England at the moment. But offering euro money, and they thought, well, why not go there and use these conversations and play around with the idea of maybe writing a book about how, you know, what is really happening as we look at things, as we feel things, and try and go beyond that stuff that we keep reading in The New Scientist or in the science pages of The Guardian where they just say, wow, another breakthrough, you know, and so on and so forth. So it was, it was an exciting journey for me and a lot of fun. Before this encounter with Manzotti, who's the, the scientist who has come up with this new theory, what did you think, if you ever thought about it, what did you think consciousness was yourself? How did you sort of, how did you imagine it? Well, I'm a novelist and I'm famous for writing books that are called in-your-head books, you know, like Europa, which you mentioned there at the beginning. It's very much a book where you've, you've got five catastrophic days in the life of a person and you've got this uh, fr almost frightening internal monologue. So obviously as a writer, you're constantly thinking, what is it really like thinking and, and being alive? And also, how can you put that on the page? Because a lot of stuff that you just, you know, you wouldn't want to put on the page. Like, you know, why can't I read the type on this on this shower shampoo bottle in the hotel? Why do they print it so small and stuff like that? Um, but for me, and I think it's because I come from a very verbal background. You know, my, my father was a clergyman preacher I studied literature I'm always arguing with people in my head you know I'm walking along the street but really I'm arguing with somebody who talked to me in such a way or or even arguing with a newspaper article or thinking what I would tell some journalist if I had the chance so for me it was, it was very much a verbal thing and I had already actually written pieces essays reflections on the whole question of like the location of language, like how does language actually attach to the to us? You know, where where is it? Because again, 
you can open as many brains as you want, but you won't find the words in there, and uh, you won't be able to know whether the person speaks French or or Russian by opening his brain. You know, so so how is that possible that there are no apparent codes? So I'd already written and thought about that. I, obviously, as a, a writer, has written a lot of criticism. Well, you know, I, I've always thought that, for example, Joyce's representation of consciousness is completely false for me. Uh, it's very beautiful and very wonderful to read, but it's, uh, you just realise either something's happening to him that isn't happening to me, or you know. And I think one of the tests with when you read books that are pretending to portray consciousness is whether you actually become more interested in the writing and the portrayal than that than the content, you know, because actually Joyce is just being very beautiful, whereas consciousness is maybe not not like that. But anyway, I hadn't thought that much about it. Just enough, but it just enough to be suddenly terribly excited to think, here I am, uh, I was in my late 50s when I started this, and you suddenly see, God, this whole fascinating subject is actually up for grabs. They still have no idea what is happening when we open our eyes and see something. They know that all the things that are going on between your eye and your brain, and they can follow everything, but they don't know why you see something. They don't know. Well, let's talk about what they do know then. What Before we talk about Manzotti's ideas, let's talk about the, what the consensus is. What do most mainstream neuroscientists think? And somebody mm-hmm. that's featured in this book is um, uh, the neuroscientist David Eagleman. He's oh. been on this show before. I've talked to him about you know, yeah, yeah, his, yeah. his ideas. This idea of... Um, Internalism, basically, the idea that, you know, everything happens in your brain. Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, I mean, Eaglesman's position is that all experience is brain experience, that the brain is locked in a dark space, Okay, has no contact at all with the world. It receives information through, uh, and information is a word that you have to be very careful with because everyone says, yeah, information. But then you think, well, what actually does the brain as it were, receive. But let's leave that aside. So he sees it as an inflow of information into something that almost immediately becomes a computer analogy. So the word processing is brought in. I mean, you'd never say your stomach is processing or your heart is processing or your liver... No, the brain is processing information and that this vision of the world that's very colourful and... uh, full of movement uh, and and full of light uh, and full of smell and sound, uh, that this is all essentially false and that the world has no colour, no uh, no smell and so on and so forth. So actually, Eagleman never says it in his book, but, but this is just straight Galileo. This is just going straight back to the beginning of science when Galileo said, out there there are only shapes, uh, movements, solids, uh, things that you can measure, uh, but everything else, colour, smell, is put on, as it were, <laughs> coated on in the brain, which which obviously then becomes a very curious notion because we, although we do know that we see the world in different ways, we also know that we know how to stop at a red traffic light, mm-hmm. you know, so there is a certain consensus, fortunately, because otherwise. Uh, so that is Eaglesman's position, and the idea is the idea is based on the notion that you are a subject and you're totally separated from an object. Information is sent to you from the object through the air. Okay, You have all kinds of clever perceptive organs to receive it. 
Uh, you then whiz it around in a million places in your brain. And by a miracle, that thing appears. It appears to you to be out there, but in fact, it's in your head. Okay. So the whole, the whole problem with internalism has always been, how is it that the thing is in the head? Especially because when you open the head, you, don't, you just... In fact, you know, when you see a dead body and it's kind of opened up, what is the thing that's most disturbing is that that person isn't in there. You know, there's, there's nothing. So you think, whoa, this, you know. Um, so that's, that is pretty much, I would say, obviously with endless sophistications. And if you talk, for example, there's a very, very long uh, section in the book where I meet, discuss with, and then we go over again, experiments by a very successful neuroscientist in Heidelberg. And she just won't have anything to do with the conclusions drawn by people like Eagleman. She'll just say, look, all I'm doing is looking at what goes on in a brain when this outside thing is happening. But I'm not saying anything about what that means. And that seems to me a much more honest position, although, although you have to have some kind of idea of what you're doing in order to know what sort of experiment to do, you know? And you mentioned, you know, the idea of um, the brain as a processor. And, of course, mm. this is... This is an age of computer processors. Mm. I mean, it's a it's a handy metaphor, but of course, in the past, we might have talked about the brain as a camera or the brain as clockwork or whatever happened to be convenient at the time. In fact, if you there there is uh, there are studies of this that that we have always represented the brain in whatever was the dominant metaphor of the day. So you will see back in previous centuries images of the brain as actually eating things. Okay, Michelangelo has a very famous drawing of the brain having tentacles drawing things into a kind of mouth. So the, the differences between the brain and a computer are simply enormous. It is an analogy of, of absolutely, absolutely no use uh, to us at all. And in fact, this is interesting because this is something that already happened to me in my own writing that I've begun to realise more and more that although people say, you know, literature is about metaphors and analogies, they are always dangerous. They always take you away from what you're talking about, really, or substitute for what you're talking about. So I would say let's always do our best to leave aside the idea of, of you know, the brain as a computer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Tim Parks, and we're talking about his latest book, Out of My Head, on the Trail of Consciousness. And Tim, in the first part, we talked about Ricardo Manzotti, who is this neuroscientist that you've you've met and and befriended, and he has this idea, um, the spread mind theory. Tell us what it is. Let's get Manzotti's background straight first. He's he started as an engineer. Okay, he's one of those guys who's a bit of a prodigy. So he he gets his degree very young and he'd gone into robotic engineering and he was actually being employed by various Korean companies to produce robots. And they had asked him to produce a visual system for a robot that would work like the human system. So that's where he he started looking at, you know, he started with the idea, the camera, obviously, You take photographs, you draw the information, and he suddenly wrote, this is not the way humans work. There's no camera, there's no... uh..." So the question is, how is a human integrated with with the environment? Now, that led him almost immediately to do a degree in uh, philosophy, then a PhD in psychology, and he finally became a professor of philosophy. Okay, and he spends just all his life reading this stuff. So his, his position was... Uh, simply this, what is out there is not being represented in the head. Okay, What is out there is out there. So the question is, how can I have experience of that thing out there? And the idea he arrives at is that your experience is this object in relation to your body. Okay, So my body comes along, and when my body comes along, because of the visual stuff I have, this object assumes, for me, the form it has. Okay. Obviously, for an ant, it would be a different experience. Obviously, if I close my eyes and touch it, it's a different experience. And that's an interesting... I mean, just think of looking in a drawer. You know, you feel in a drawer, you can't find something. You're touching the keys, you're touching the old torch that doesn't work and, you know, uh, various other things. And then you look in there. That's actually two completely different worlds being brought to you in different ways. And we tend to think that the world when we're not there is the world that we see. Not the world, funny enough, we don't think of it as the world we touch. Like you would never think, oh, that's the world, uh, okay, or at least not a, a sighted person. But if you begin to think of sight as a form of touch, think of somebody who goes along and, and has, like, say, a violet light beaming from, from his forehead in a world that's always dark. He's going to imagine the, the world is always, okay, and another guy's going to imagine it's always blue or whatever it is. But actually, that is the world meeting his visual system. So Manzotti's position is this. Any object exists in relation to another object, and our experience is the world in relation to us. So then there are so many implications and repercussions that you see. 
At the beginning, you say, no, this is completely nuts. And, you know, I would say, Ricardo, this is completely nuts. You can't convince me of this. And Ricardo would be, you know, he'd start drawing things, he'd start showing you things, he'd start thinking, well, maybe, you know, I shut my eyes, yes, the world disappears. You know, it's not in my head. Uh, so it, it just became totally fascinating, and I became also interested in the whole question of authority. And I think one of the things that really swung it, let, let me tell you this, one of the things that really swung it was after images. If we look really hard at a, a square of red paper, okay, and then we move our vision to a, a, white, uh, a, a white background, we see something called cyan, which is a kind of bluish-green. In the textbooks, they say you see green, but actually you don't see green. And, and there have been studies done to show that you don't see green, you see cyan. Why is it important you see cyan? Well, in the official version, the Eagleman version, but also, you know, also Chalmers and Dennett and people like that, in their version, this proves that colour is created in the head because the head has created a green where there isn't a green on the white space. It's also... It's already a bit tricky, isn't it, that you need to look at a white space and not, say, a black space. But, OK. So, Ricardo did a lot of work on this, getting a lot of after images and checking exactly what people see, like getting him to, get him to look at blue and then white and then showing them three or four different colours and saying which exactly of these did you see. And then he showed, quite simply, that what you see is white, if you're looking at white, after red. You see white minus red. If you just go on the computer and play that game with the pixels and stuff, take the red pixels out of white, what you see is what you see with an afterimage. So he's saying that it's not generated in your brain. You're looking at the white, but you're not seeing the red in the white because for a moment you've saturated your senses with red and they are not responding to red anymore. So in that few moments where they're not responding to red because they've seen too much of it, they're seeing this colour here. And he actually demonstrated this. And then he showed me how difficult it was to publish a paper showing this, even though it's such easy science to do. And he then, reading endlessly as he does, began to find that there were people in the 18th century who'd already noticed this and then just been, as it were, deliberately forgotten because it didn't fit the internal position. You're not generating the colour. The colour is, or something is, there. So that really swung it for me. I thought, this guy, you know, the authorities are saying one thing, but on this, it's any ordinary person can go and check this, and he's right about this. As there's one on the cover of the book, he also uses the rainbow as a sort of explanation for this phenomenon as well. Tell us about... Well, I th he uses the rainbow, I suppose, as an easy example of that an object really is relative to the person who sees it. Because we know that you only see a rainbow. You've got sunlight coming, usually low sunlight, and then you've got some rain falling in a different place. But you will only see a rainbow if you're in a particular place. Another person in another place doesn't see a rainbow. Now, that doesn't mean that, that the same phenomenon is not up there, that there aren't the, the, the water objects and there isn't the light, you know, the water drops and then the light. It just means you're not in the right position to see it as a rainbow because it doesn't refract for you. So what he's saying is that every encounter of ours with an object has this same relativity, that the object as it is, because we never see actually a whole object. Like we use words like chair or table 
But when we look at the table like the one in front of us, and we, we, I see this particular rhomboid kind of skewed over, and you're seeing it in, in another way. And, you know, I'm never going to see underneath it probably unless I start feeling for chewing gum or something. So, you know, we have this, I think partly because we use words, we have this idea that we see objects whole, but we don't. So his position on this would be, the rainbow is an easy one to demonstrate. No scientist can talk about a rainbow without talking about where the viewer was. Like, you can't talk about a rainbow separate from a viewer. And he would say, this is actually, you can't talk about any object separate from the things it is relative to. And in fact, no object exists alone. We can't even imagine that. So what has been the reaction to his ideas amongst other neuroscientists? Well... The reactions are mixed. There are very defensive reactions on the, on the part of people who are, as it were, in power. And then there are other people who are just, just terribly excited and interesting because it's not that Manzotti is saying the brain's not doing anything. On the contrary, he's saying the brain with all its neurons is making this possible. It is the complicated object that the world is relative to. If the world's relative to an ant... Something else is happening if the world's relative to a dog and so on. So a lot of neuroscientists, for example, at the University of Parma, uh, which is uh, the big university in Italy for neuroscience where, they, where the professor discovered mirror neurons. Okay, so it's a university very much on the map. Uh, the young students there ask their professors to please uh, start teaching uh, and letting them experiment with Manzotti's point of view. Uh, he's going to do a paper which should come out later this year with um, Head of Philosophy at MIT on the question of dreams, which is going to be uh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, very mixed response. Other people think he's completely crazy. I mean, you know, we've, we've had interesting correspondences with, say, Garland Strawson, who thinks it's a completely non, non-starter. Uh, Daniel Deckett, very dismissive. Um, and, and, you know, Ricardo's invited all over the world all the time now to talk about this, uh, partly because I think he's also very charismatic. So there's uh, uh, people are very... And, and he's very, very good at explaining, better than me, at explaining uh, what he does. Although he's delighted with this book because whereas he's written a book which is all philosophy and science and actually quite difficult to follow, and, and this book's much more, you know, let us ordinary folk try and see, not ordinary, but intelligent, I hope, try and really see what, what's going on here. And it it might seem like, uh, you know, an esoteric conversation between a, a bunch of neuroscientists at a conference, but there are implications. What are the implications? If he's right, how does this change things for us, you know, for our relationships between people and between objects? I think the, impl- the implication is just huge. Because the whole of the whole of our civilization of our organization is based on the separation of a subject and an object, and that's why we can treat objects the way we do, and treat nature the way we do. But it's also that separation between the subject and object allows the neuroscientists like Eagleman to say to you, "Well, you're not what what's out there is not what you're seeing. There is an absolute object, an absolute reality, which only the scientist knows about." 
And this was a move that Plato made. I mean, this is exactly what Plato did. We're all stuck in a cave looking at shadows on the wall, but philosophers know about the world of ideas and so on. So, so what it means is, in the Western position, we're always having to ask an authority like a scientist to tell us if something is real or not. You know, no, that's just an illusion. No, that's just... Uh, there was an incredible article in the Scientific American uh, where a philosopher from Kent, Connecticut, was talking about uh, new theories of consciousness and basically saying so we have to accept that it's all an illusion yeah but at that point you know why am I reading the article if it's an illusion you know I mean why, why, why? Um, in any event there is the question of authority first and foremost people telling us what we're feeling and what, who we are and what we're doing and then then there's actually the, the whole feeling of alienation, which is typical of the West, of feeling I'm not really part of the world, whereas uh, Manzotti's not saying, you actually are the world. Um, you are the world as it organises itself around your body, as your body interrelates with it. So you're not your body, although a lot of your experience is experience of your body, and you're not the world except as it's, as it's met by your body. So, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the reasons why it won't be easily accepted is precisely because it's so mind-boggling. Because I mean, take another, take another thing. If we are locked inside our head and it's all made up, as it were, and it's all processing, then you can download it onto a computer when you die, maybe. And we've seen how many articles have we seen about that with absolutely no scientific support at all. Or if you move into the religious sphere, if it's not, you know, if your experience is not the world but something separate from it, maybe you can go to heaven. You know, maybe you survive death. But in, in Manzotti's position, once the body is no longer able to, to engage with the world, there's nothing there. There's just nothing. So, you know, there are ups and downs to this position. Well, just one more question then, and just to, to rephrase that last question slightly, what are the implications for you as a novelist of this? Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I must say, I have a whole f different feeling about language. Uh, more and more, I, 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 do, I was already moving towards a language as performance. And I'm, I'd be, I'm very curious to write. I haven't written any fiction since I've been writing this, but I'm very curious to write a fiction that gives a stronger sense that the experience is, you know, that when I, when I choose a beer or something, the beer is partly, as it were, choosing me. <laughs> um, but we already... You know, there's a lot of folk uh, or idiomatic language that already, you know, she turned your head. Well, isn't that the same thing? You know, I was unable not to turn because, and, and so on, uh, I was unable not to drink the beer, as it were, uh, because it was there and it, it exercised the power over me. So I'm very curious to to integrate this into in, into my writing, if I can, and see see how it would work. But the whole of our language has been set up on a subject-verb-object pattern. So, you know, that's a difficult one. So I've been talking to Tim Parks. We've been talking about his latest book, Out of My Head, on the Trail of Consciousness, which is out now in the UK from Harville Secker. Tim, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks. Thanks so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.